as we left Nicodemus and Jesus in their encounter last week with the part one of this amazing encounter, uh, the last words we heard from Nicodemus in response to all he was hearing from Jesus, probably a lot like what we would say when we were given all that Nicodemus was given and probably would feel like we're drinking from a fire hose. He said, how can these things be? That was the last word we left him with. Look with me at John chapter 3, verse 10. John 3, 10. We pick up with the conversation and we pick up with Christ's response to that question, that marveling, how can these things be? Jesus, in response, said, Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. That tells us that Nicodemus was very prominent. We know he was a member of the Sanhedrin. We know he was a Pharisee. We, We even can guess fairly accurately that he was pretty wealthy. But this tells us that he had a a very real position of prominence, that he was a significant, known teacher of the nation of Israel. Some translations, maybe yours says, the, are you the teacher of Israel? And some scholars look at that and say that he was actually the highest teacher of that day, of all of Israel, maybe. What we do know is this was a significant title and a significant position that carried a lot of responsibility to it. God's Word says not many of you should become teachers because you will have a stricter judgment because what you teach others, they're going to be following you and what you teach them. And so if you're teaching them something that's in error or you're you're not teaching them the full weight of truth, that's on you as a teacher. So yeah, I mean, goodness, I, I... I hear that, that warning and that responsibility, and, and it causes me to, to tremble a little bit, as it should any teacher of God's Word. And so Jesus here, he's not trying to be cruel to Nicodemus. He's just saying, Nicodemus, you should know this. I mean, after all, you're a teacher of Israel. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things that I've, I've said to you tonight? Verse 11, truly, I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. There's a little bit of mystery there and surrounding the word we and what Jesus is meaning there, and there's been all kinds of debates and thoughts about it. Probably, most likely, he's referring to John the Baptist, his cousin. He's early in the ministry. John the Baptist is still around. He's been recently baptizing a lot of people, making a lot of converts, including Pharisees. And the Pharisees sent a delegation to John the Baptist asking him who he really is and what he's really about. And, and, you know, they inquired and investigated. They didn't all believe. Some did, but they didn't all believe his message of repentance. And so very likely that's what Jesus is referring to. Could be he's even referring to the Trinity and the whole council of the divine Godhead. That he's here in person, in the flesh, representing and, and being full of. It's, it's possible. The point is, Jesus is saying, 
I'm not just making something up. This isn't just conjecture. This is everything you're hearing is the absolute truth. It's what, what I know to be true. It's what I have seen myself, and I'm just letting you know how things are. But you're just not accepting it. You're not latching on to this. You're not connecting to what I'm communicating. In verse 12, Jesus says, If I have told you about earthly things, which is all the things Jesus had been saying up to this point and throughout this encounter, all those basic elementary truths that Nicodemus should have gotten, should have grasped, the illustrations he's been using that should have made it clear, but haven't. Jesus says, if I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? In other words, Nicodemus, I can't take you deeper because you're still stuck in the shallow end. I can't reveal to you even more deep things until you get the basic things. Why was all this so hard for Nicodemus? Why was it that he, a teacher of Israel, didn't know these things? It's because Nicodemus, while being sincere and well-meaning and searching for truth, was also very much wrapped up in legalism. Nicodemus, our Pharisee friend here, was very much 100% through and through legalist. If you were to look up legalist in the dictionary of the time, if there were such a thing, there would be a picture of Nicodemus with a big arrow pointing to him and others like him. And because of that, he had a veil over his mind, over his eyes, over his heart. And he just wasn't able to grasp what Jesus was trying to get him to grasp. And what was true of Nicodemus and and the stumbling block that he was dealing with, the stumbling block of legalism, it's going to be true of every single person in every age. Legalism doesn't change. Just like it did for Nicodemus, it will do for everyone else that is under the weight of it. Legalism, listen to this, Don't, don't miss this. Legalism binds us instead of making us free. And it blinds us instead of helping us see. It's what legalism always will do. It binds us, enslaves us, captures us instead of making us free. And it blinds us instead of helping us to see. See what? To see who God really is. What He's really like. What He really calls us to be and to do. What it really means to know Him and live in Him and through Him and for Him. Legalism blinds us to all that. And it doesn't free at all. It only enslaves. It only locks us down and locks us out of all that God has for us. And right along with that, Nicodemus made the mistake and all the Pharisees with him. And then, unfortunately, by extension, because he was a teacher of Israel and because he was teaching Israel his way and their way of knowing God, He caused a lot of people probably to make the same mistake he did, and that was to mistake being religious as being the same thing as having a relationship with God. Church, listen to me, everybody. Listen, don't mistake being religious for having a personal relationship with God. It's not the same thing. You can be the most religious person in the world 
and still be the farthest away from God in the world. And I've said this last week, but I'll say it again. That's the deception, that's the danger of being really, really religious or of just being religious. Let me say it that way. Because religion fools you. It's a mirage. It makes you think you're completely fine. You're doing all the right things. You're dotting the I's. You're crossing the T's. You're following the rules. And you're participating in the rituals of the religion. I'm good. But religion isn't God. Even though, unfortunately, we try to make it that. And being religious is just not the same as having a relationship with the living God. And having a relationship with the living God through the living and eternal Word, Jesus Christ, that's the only way to be right with God. It's the only way to know Him. And Nicodemus was making that mistake of stopping short of the relationship and focusing instead and depending instead on his, his religious life, which was impressive, sure. But religion is all about performance. It's not about relationship. And that's why, that's why he wasn't getting all of this. He had the blinders on his eyes. Trusting in a legalistic, empty religious system to show us what God is really like and to make us right with Him, it's like Charlie Brown trusting Lucy to hold the football in place for him to kick it. You've probably seen that comic strip or the old cartoon where poor Charlie Brown, every time he just wanted to run up and kick the football, right? That's what he wanted. And Lucy said, hey, this time, Charlie Brown, I'll hold it. Because she had this habit. You know, she was really evil. Lucy was really evil. And she had this habit of, of holding the football in place. And you know, he took off running and he ran as fast as he could. And right when he was getting ready to kick it, what did she do? What did she do? She pulled it away, and so he flips up and screams and falls on his head, and he's all dizzy. She does that every time. And that's, that's how legalism works. That's how legalism is. That's how just an empty religious pursuit is. It promises, all right, you're going to make the goal. You're going to hit the target. You're going to know God. You're going to be right with Him. Just keep doing more of this stuff. And we think, all right, I'm good. And right when we're at the target, and we fall flat on our face. It's, it's just not the right way of thinking. It's not the right way of living. It's not freedom. It's not illumination. It's the opposite. And that's what he was trying to get Nicodemus to understand. Nicodemus, you're depending on the wrong things. You're looking to the wrong source. You might think you're enlightened and you're wise and you've got it all figured out, but you are clueless and you're blind and you're lost. And I'm trying to let you know that. I'm trying to redeem you. I'm trying to bring you into the light. Verse 13, the conversation and the encounter continue. Jesus says this, No one has ascended into heaven except the One who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's certainly what John was trying to communicate and reveal in his prologue of this Gospel. John 1.14, he said, The Word, and that's Jesus, the eternal Word of the Father, the Word became flesh and dwelt. That's literally tabernacled among us. Camped out with us. Lived 
among us. We observed, we gazed intently His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is saying, you can trust Me. You can listen to Me. What I'm saying is is right, and, and I'm speaking as one with unique authority and unique perspective because no one has ever been up to heaven to see and hear and understand the things I'm telling you except the one who descended the Son of Man, which was a title for Himself. It was Jesus' favorite title because it was saying, I'm the Messiah. The Son of Man was a title that was prophesied from Daniel and others in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. It was the title used of the divine Messiah, the one that God would send, but He wouldn't just be any person. He would be, in fact, God. And there was all kinds of prophecies and arrows pointing back to that, and that's why Jesus said that about Himself so much. It was an unmistakable title. And He's saying, Nicodemus, you can listen to Me because I'm the unique one. I've got unique perspective. And then he he goes on in verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. He was referring back to what took place with ancient Israel and Moses in the wilderness That's recorded in Numbers 21, 4-9. We won't look at that. We won't turn to that. But let me just summarize that for you. Israel did what Israel was really good at, grumbling and complaining. And they said, we've had enough of this. We're not eating enough. We're not eating what we want. We're not getting enough of what we want. We don't like this sand. We don't like this and that. We don't like you. We're done. We're going to go back to Egypt. I know we were enslaved. We were in bondage. We cried out to God. But it's better than this. And God said, all right, fine, I'm going to give you something that's really going to get your attention. And he sent serpents that would bite the people and they would die. And all kinds of people were dying left and right. And of course, they cried out to Moses. And he cried out to God on their behalf, interceded. And God said, okay, fashion a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, hoist it up, lift it up, and tell the people that if they will look to the bronze serpent on the pole and trust that I will heal them if they will look at that, they'll be healed. And sure enough, that's what happened. So it was an act of total faith on the part of Israel. They had to realize they can't save themselves. There's nothing they can do to heal themselves from this plague, this disease. They've got to look to what God provided to make them well. And Jesus is saying that incident, that occurrence, it really happened, and it was... It was a very real physical thing, but deeper than that and beyond the physical, it was a picture of me. That's what Jesus is saying. He was pointing back to that and saying that. Nicodemus, you remember that? You know about that? You've taught people that, right? Nicodemus would probably be like, yeah, yeah, know all about that. That's one of the most famous stories. And yeah, I've taught many times about that. Well, that, that was about me, Jesus is saying. That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you I'm here for. That picture of the serpent on the pole, I'm the fulfillment of that. I've got to be lifted up in the same way so that everyone who believes in me, who looks to me to save them, will be saved. 
Everybody who realizes they have no remedy in themselves, they have no cure in and of themselves, and no one else can provide it, but if they will look to me, trust in me, they'll find the remedy for their terminal disease. And then, what is probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, verse 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the danger was something familiar. The danger was something that we know so well that we can just rattle off without even really giving it thought almost automatically is that we miss the importance of it. We miss the significance. We forget the impact of it. Because we just know it by memory and we, we breeze through it, right? We recite it really quickly. We don't really stop to think about what is being said and how important that is. So I'm going to go back through this verse and we're going to just unpack it and wring it out. I mean, just like a rag. We're going to wring out as much significance and impact as we can from this. John 3.16 starts with four God. What does that tell us? What does that point to? It, it shows us God who is perfect love. He is perfect love. He is the essence of love. All love comes from Him, flows from Him. He's the source of it. He's the perfect example and maintainer of it all. He is love. 1 John 4.8 tells us that. God is love. So He's perfect love. And He's also God is also perfectly holy, perfectly good, and perfectly just. That's who God is. So for God, perfect love, perfect holiness, perfect goodness, and perfect justice, what did He do? He loved. And the word, the word loved here is agape. It's supreme love. It's, it's loving with the whole being. Holding nothing back. Who did God, who is perfect love and loving in this way, who did He love? What was the object of this love? This supreme love of the perfect lover? What's the object? The world. The world. And what is the world? What do we know of the world? Well, we know that the world is completely corrupt. Completely corrupt. Hopelessly bent toward evil. The total opposite of God and in opposition to Him in every way. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the world. That's the world that God, the perfect lover, loves with perfect love. And He loved it in this way. He gave. He gave his one and only Son. Like with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain where Abraham brought Isaac with him and he told Isaac, lay down on the altar. Put the wood up around and, and then you lay down on it. And he bound his son. And his son willingly let him do it. And he said, we have the fire and we have the knife, but my father, where's the lamb? And Abraham said to him, my son God himself will provide the lamb. And there had to be some dialogue there because the next thing we see in that account is 
Isaac on the altar, strapped down. He would have had to be willing to do it. And as Abraham believed that God would somehow either spare his son Isaac, or if he had if he had Abraham go through with killing his son, offering him to God, God would bring him back from the dead. He believed that, and that's why he was going through with it. And Isaac must have believed that as well, and he trusted his father completely. So when it says he gave his one and only son, it was just like Abraham and Isaac, which was another picture of what Jesus came to be and to do. And I I just really think Nicodemus probably would have gotten that as soon as he said that. In this way, God loved that He gave His one and only Son. And and I think Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, probably went back to that example, that occurrence of Abraham and Isaac. And like with Abraham and Isaac, that one and only Son was offered. But with Jesus, the knife came down on the Son. With Isaac, as Abraham was poised to plunge the knife into his son, Do you remember what happened in this story? The angel of the Lord, which is whom? Jesus, an Old Testament occurrence, an Old Testament revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, called out from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham, don't. Don't harm the boy. I know you fear and love God more than anything else. He stayed the hand of Abraham. But with Jesus... God the Father let the knife fall. He let the judgment come down. He, Jesus, is the substitute. He is the promised, provided Lamb. Going on in this incredible verse. He loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son, the perfect substitute, the promised, provided Lamb. Why? What's the purpose? So that... Everyone who believes in Him, that perfect promised Lamb, the substitute, Jesus, everyone who believes in Him. What does believe in Him mean? We, we say that phrase. We use those words. What's it really mean? It means to put all hope in. All your hope in. Total dependence. It's what you're doing right now. You're putting all your dependence, all your weight on these chairs to hold you up, to support you. You got in your car and you drove here. And most of you, I, I hope none of you, you know, did this, where you, you got out and spent 35 minutes checking every aspect of the car to make sure it was safe for you to drive here. No, you, you probably just got in it like you do every day. That's an exercise of faith. It's total dependence. It's all your weight. So when Jesus says that everyone who believes in Him, He's saying everyone that puts all hope, abandons hope in anything else, and puts all hope in Me to save them, to make them well, to make them right with God, to give them a hope and a future. Total dependence in what I came to do that no one else can do. Everyone who does that, look at what it says next, will not perish. Now this word perish, it's not just about physical death. That's part of it, but it's certainly not all of it. It goes much, much deeper than just physical death. When he says will not perish, that's referring really to eternal death. Spiritual death, which is deserved, by the way. That's what's owed all of us. 
by nature, inheriting the sinful nature and rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So by nature, and then by choice, by willful choice, to sin against a holy God, to rebel against His rule and reign. We're owed that. We're deserved eternal death beyond physical death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus says, everyone who believes in me will not face that fate, that deserved owed fate. That's mercy. It's mercy. It's not getting what you deserve. It's mercy. And then look at this contrast. They will not perish, but have. That's, that's presently possessed. It's not some far off future thing. It's they'll have it right now. Presently possessed, owned by right. What? Eternal life. You won't get eternal death, which you deserve. Instead, by putting all your hope and dependence in Jesus alone, everyone who does that will have presently possessed and own eternal life. Contrasted with eternal death. Eternal life, which is undeserved. Never owed. By rights, shouldn't have. That's grace. That's grace. Grace is getting what you should never get. Mercy is not getting what you should get. And both are found in Jesus. Both are offered by Jesus. And only by Jesus. Isn't John 3.16 great? I mean, church, it's the Gospel. It's the whole Gospel. In that one verse. In verse 17, another incredibly important, significant verse that we usually don't go to, 17 and 18, Jesus continues and He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not. That's the qualifier. Is not condemned. How do you not be condemned? How do you avoid and escape condemnation? By believing in Jesus. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. It's not something you can kind of console yourself with. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm not condemned yet. If I don't do anything about this, about this Jesus, I might be condemned, but I'm not condemned yet. I'm, I'm living free. I'm living my best life now. No. No, Jesus says anybody who does not believe is condemned already. Why? How? Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You see, choosing to reject Christ's rescue is choosing to remain condemned. John 3.36 tells us, again, Jesus speaking in a different encounter, different conversation. But John 3.36 says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Has it. Actively. Presently. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So, again, remember... We're born into sin. We're born into rebellion. We're born with the wrath of God abiding on us already. 
as cute and precious and sweet as those young babies are, those new babies, guess what? They're born into a situation where the wrath of God is on them and will remain on them until that person looks to Jesus and says, I need you to rescue me. I need you to heal me. I need you to give me the remedy that no one else is going to be able to provide. I believe. One time, there was a pastor that came in to a barber shop to get his hair cut, because we do that from time to time. And he sat down in the chair, and you know, you know how barber shops work, those of you who do that. It's kind of obligatory that you have a conversation with the barber. Like, it just, it's awkward if you don't. You know, you'd think it might be awkward to strike up conversation with the barber, but it's actually the opposite. It goes better if you talk to him. They like that kind of thing. So, you know, he's sitting in the chair, and they're small talking about this and that, sports, weather, politics. And then, then somehow the conversation makes its way to the spiritual, and they start talking about God and things of the Bible, and, and they're, they're just talking and comparing, and finally the barber just stops them and says, Pastor, I, I know you mean well, but you've got to understand something. I don't believe in God. I don't believe any of that stuff. And the pastor says, really? Why is that? And he says, well, come on. Look at the world. You know how many people I have coming in here, sitting in this chair, that aren't half the person you are? I mean, I've heard some things, preacher. And even if I didn't have somebody in to prove to me how messed up the world is, all I have to do is look out there on the street. All I have to do is look out there and where's God? How could a loving God do this and this? And he started giving all these examples, you know, of how terrible the world is and and why because things are so bad, that means there can't be a good and loving, gracious God. Well, the pastor thought about saying something, but he thought, no, I I don't want to get in an argument. I mean, he's got scissors after all. Um... I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to bite my tongue. So he let him do his job. He finished the haircut, pays him, walks out to the street from the shop, and he's standing there, and he's just, you know, he's just concerned about the barber and and just kind of depressed at what he just heard. And, And he sees a man walking up toward where he is, and the man, I mean, he looks rough. Like, he's got long, stringy, greasy hair, beard down to here, all frizzy and crazy, and I mean, he hasn't seen a barber's chair in a long time. It's obvious. The pastor thinks, and he, he quickly goes back in the barber shop, you know, and the barber's sweeping up the hair, and he says, hey, you know what? I've decided something. He says, oh, yeah, what's that? I don't believe in barbers. The barber looks at him and is like, oh, okay, what, where's the punchline? And he says, you don't believe in barbers? And the pastor says, no, no, I don't believe in barbers. And so the, the barber thinks, I'm going to play along. Okay, why don't you believe in barbers, preacher? He said, because if barbers existed, this man walking up down the street, in fact, here, come here, come here, look at this man. So the barber comes up. He, he looks out the door at this man coming up right by his shop, and he watches him as he passes the door. And the pastor says, see, see that man? If, if barbers existed, there wouldn't be anybody like that. There'd be nobody with long, stringy, messed up hair and and a messed up beard. Everybody would be groomed and looking nice and clean and sharp. And the barber said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Of course I exist. I'm here. It's just the fact that they don't come to me, and that's why they look the way they do. If he came to me, I'd fix him up. I'd make him right. And the pastor looked at the barber and said, 
Exactly. Don't blame God. Don't blame God for people choosing to stay in the mess of sin that they're in. He made a way for them to be rescued from it. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to convey and communicate to Nicodemus. Verse 19, he says this. This is the judgment. This is the verdict. The light, which Jesus is, the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. That's why they avoid the light. That's why they hate it. Because they know if they go into the light, then all their deeds, all their heart, everything they are will be exposed like a big floodlight. And what a contrast this is These verses, what a contrast these are from what we saw in verse 16. I don't want you to miss this contrast. In John 3.16, we see a perfectly holy God loving agape, supreme love, all of His being, loving a sinful, rebellious world that He goes to unthinkable lengths to redeem. I mean, sending His own Son. But three and four verses later, here in verses 19 and 20, How do the objects of His radical love respond? They love, and don't miss this, everybody get this, because this is just astounding. Same word. Same word. John 3.16, for God so agaped the world, right? It's the same word. The world, the people of the world, loved, agaped, the darkness of, of sin so much that they reject the Son of God's rescue and light. I mean, is that not mind-blowing to you? That means we can choose to have supreme love for a supremely bad thing. And so the world took God's supreme, selfless, sacrificial love and said, no thank you, I'm going to give all of myself. I'm going to love with my whole being the darkness of my sin instead of the light you've given me. Wow. The depths of the depraved heart. They loved sin. They loved the darkness. They hate the light. And my friends, that, that right there, that is the answer for why there is always so much evil, so much injustice, so much darkness in this world. It's not because God didn't care. It's not because God didn't love. It's not because God is not good. It's not because the light has gone out. It's because men, people, love darkness rather than the light. And they choose it. And that's why there's so much wrong in the world. The very fact of evil in the world actually shows us there is the ultimate good. The very fact that there's darkness shows that there is light that the darkness is trying to get away from. It's fleeing from it. Here's another contrast, a really good one, and a really good consequence. Verse 21, 
But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Because there's no way good things come from people so messed up, right? We can't be good enough. We can't manufacture good on our own because we are hopelessly, helplessly lost on our own. It has to come from outside of us that is placed in us and coming up from some source other than us. Really, to paint the picture well of what Jesus is saying, we, we have to think about Matthew five fourteen through 16, the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, You, you, my, my followers, you who follow me, you are the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, but I give you my light, so now you are the light of the world because of me. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, just like that, let your light, which Jesus gives, those that are His, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Because there's no way it came from you. Now, that was the last statement in this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. It ends right there. It doesn't go any further. And we're kind of left hanging. Like, okay, but what about Nicodemus? Did he respond? Did he change? Did he continue in his legalistic, empty religious ways? Or did he finally get all this and, and turn? Well, we're not completely told. It's not explicit. We're not told completely how it might be. But there is some very specific implications elsewhere that tell me, and I, I believe that there was a whole lot more to Nicodemus' story as a result of this encounter. What I mean is, further on in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they are finding a way of, of silencing Jesus, and they're coming up with a way of arresting Him, so they send out their people, their lackeys, to go and arrest Jesus and bring Him before them so they can interrogate Him and hopefully put Him in jail. And throughout this plan and in the course of their scheming, Nicodemus actually stands up for Jesus before his fellow Pharisees when they try to arrest him. And John 7, verses 50-51 records this, Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, and who was one of them, one of these Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Now, I don't think Nicodemus would have risked his own reputation and any trouble for himself if he wasn't devoted to Jesus. I just don't think he would have stood up and said this. I think that this is an indication that, that he was changed by this encounter. And if that's not enough, at the end of John's Gospel, John 19, 39-40, it records that after Jesus died, Nicodemus was with Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it to anoint it and put it in his own unused tomb. 
It records that Nicodemus was right there with Joseph. He was showing honor and worship as they prepared him for burial with dignity and reverence. And, I mean, why would he do that? Why would he be there? Why would he be showing such care to the body of Jesus if he wasn't also a disciple of Jesus? Is it 100%? No, but I really do believe, I personally believe that Nicodemus finally got it, finally grasped it, did change, and did follow Jesus. And if someone like Nicodemus was able to have his blind eyes opened and his life completely changed by his encounter with Christ, then there is hope for the legalistic Pharisee types in our day. And remember, there's often a lot more Pharisee in us than we would like to admit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Nicodemus and his amazing encounter with Jesus. Thank You for recording this through Your Spirit and through John and same with the other authors of the Gospels where we get to see and hear from Jesus. Thank You. Help us not just to hear, though. Help us to do what James says and not be hearers only, but doers of the Word that we've heard. Thank You for setting us free, not just from sin, but from legalism and from empty religion. Thank You for giving us the only remedy there is, that of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. May we encounter Him every moment, every day. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.